Well, it's good to be here with you this morning. You know, I think about sometimes whenever I'm driving to church and I, after you've been studying the Word of God, and I just feel like, Lord, I have the best job in the world. You know, to be able to study the Word of God and present the Word of God and help disciple people to know you. I can't think of anything better to do with my life, and really we're all called to make disciples, and so we are all really called to do this same thing. But um, it's never a wasted moment when you, you took time this morning to come and sit, hear the word of God. I pray you came in this morning with expectation, because it really does matter that we approach the word of God in faith, that God is real, he loves you. He has a plan and purpose for your life. And it's so important that when we approach the Word of God, we expect to hear from Him. He's a really good communicator. He is. And we need to be a, have our ears open to hear what He has to say. And so um, turn in your Bible with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We have several Bibles you can just borrow here at the church or get your electronic device out. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, verse 7. I titled this message today, these portions of scripture that we're going to go through, living to serve others. Living to serve others. Um, And I just want to reiterate too a moment about the rummage sale and thank um, Susan is in here today. Cindy, give her a hand. And Cindy, Amanda is over serving again in mile one. I mean, these ladies have started the, the rummage sale collection. How many, how far in advance? Probably last fall we began even collecting things. But it takes a lot of time and effort to put that rummage sale together. And uh, we really couldn't do it without people like them with servant hearts to lead and the other people that joined in. It took the whole church, yes, because other people then began to bring things in, and then the setting up, and and even serving during the last two days of the rummage sale. God sees all that. It's a labor of love, and it's important to him. It means something to him. You know, sometimes we think, well, how big is that? Well, he said, if you give a cup of cold water to a little one in my name, you won't lose your reward. So he sees all these little ways that we we labor, we we put a labor of love together together. to make him known. And that's really what this is. It's a, it's a kind of outreach to the community. And so, again, help us next week. We need some help on Friday and Saturday. That would be great uh, if you could come on and help us to clean, clean it all up. And we thank you, Father, for the amount of money that we made, too. We've made a good amount of money, which will be used for some of the things we'll share with you where that money will go in the next weeks as we add it all up together. So let's just pray before we approach the Word of God. I, Father, I thank you for... Our church, I thank you for Community Life Church. Lord, I thank you for this body of people that you've joined together. And you've gifted each one. I pray you would help us to stir up those gifts that are inside. Each person, each of us, Lord, you said has received a gift that we would use to minister to others for the sake of your glory. And I pray, Father, that as we open up the word today, we read your word today, we study it this morning, I pray that you... Holy Spirit would unveil the truth of it to our mind and to our heart. Help us to be really good listeners and hearers. And then also, Lord, your promise is that if we are doers of the word, then we become blessed. So help us, Lord, not to just be hearers this morning, but I pray that every person walk out of here 
prompted by your spirit to do and act upon what it is that we've heard. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay, so you're there in 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 7. Uh, it says, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be alert and sober of mind that you may pray. Verse 8, and above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. <laughs> and as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So there's only four verses there, but it's amazing how much you can get out of four verses. And when I started to break this down, that's as far as I could get. And actually, next week, we're really going to pick up deeper on verse 10 about everyone has received a gift and how important it is that we stir that up and we use that for the sake of God's glory. But uh, just to rehash a little bit, to recap a little bit, since it's been a couple of weeks, we had uh, missionaries here from Two of the missionary organizations that CLC supports, one was Think Missions, uh, was last week, the week before that was Reach International, um, and they shared with us about uh, the places that they have their influence in establishing the gospel, establishing churches, uh, and it's good to hear how the gospel is spreading around the world, isn't it? It's inspiring. Uh, and it's spreading. The one, uh, Reach Missions deals with the gospel message in planting churches in Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Miramar, places like that. I think Missions has been going to Cuba for years. Uh, some of them are going to India uh, and places like Bolivia. And often these places that they describe, the people are living in poverty. They're living in a lot of poverty and, but they're happy. I mean, they're happy to hear the gospel, even in spite of persecution coming upon them. And so this book, like in First Peter, when I began to rethink it, you know, in preparation for this message, I thought, this book is so relevant to what we just heard. Because the early church experienced the very same thing. You know, we, we, I've said this before, that this letter was written, First Peter was written about, 65 AD, that's 30-some years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the gospel was spreading. And miracles were happening. You know, and people's lives were getting transformed. But persecution was also on the rise in the early church. And people were suffering brutal persecution. We shared with you how... You know, Christians would be taken into the Colosseum and used as entertainment, release a lion into, into the Colosseum and just watch them be eaten. Brutal things, soaking them in oil, using them as human torches in Nero's garden. And so this kind of persecution has been going on since the early church began. And the Apostle Peter when he writes this book, it's a, it was a letter that was actually, we call it a book, but it was really a letter that was sent out to the churches that were scattered outside of Jerusalem, like which is now in modern-day Turkey. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and the basic theme of the letter is that suffering is going to happen to us in this life. Suffering, especially 
for persecution for the sake of the gospel is going to happen to us in this life. We will face it. Now, I know in America, how many of us have been threatened to be thrown into prison because you own a Bible? No. It's, we don't quite understand this. However, you do see it encroaching a little bit more upon us, do you not? I mean, biblical values are just thrown to the side, stomped on, mocked. And so there, there will come a day, I believe, in this country when there will be much greater persecution. It's happening now a little bit with job losses. People are threatened, well, if you, if you say this, do this, and it's based in a Christian belief, you'll lose your job. So it's a type of persecution, but it's not the brutal physical persecution like the early church was suffering. But he wrote this letter to remind them, don't be surprised at the fiery trials that have come upon you like something strange is happening to you, okay? He wanted them to know that when these trials hit, don't think that God is somehow displeased with you, like you've done something wrong. Because I think that happens, doesn't it? When you hit a hardship in your life, and you've been serving the Lord faithfully, I don't know that there's one person in here that wouldn't begin to have asked the Lord the question, what? I thought that if I served you and obeyed you, my life would be blessed. And it's true. We are blessed. We are blessed. But it doesn't exempt us from sufferings that will also come upon us in this life. How many of you have experienced some suffering in this life? It may not be persecution, but it could be in any number of other ways that we suffer hardship and disappointments, setbacks, trials in our life. And he reminds them that this is a part of life, and then he also reminds them of their real identity. He speaks about being born of God and how the blood of Jesus has, has actually changed our life, has given us a brand new identity. In 1 Peter, in the first couple of chapters, he talks about being a sojourner. Remember that definition of a sojourner? Someone who's just a temporary resident in a strange land, like I'm passing through. That's really how we need to look at our life. This world is not our home. This world is not our home. We're actually here on a temporary assignment, if you will. We're away from the kingdom, our home. Whenever we die, leave this, because it says that in 2, I think it's 2 Corinthians 5, that although, you know, we live in this tent, this tent is our earthly home, but if, if we die, we have an eternal dwelling, not made with hands, but it's, made, it's a building from God made in heaven for us. Amen? So no matter what happens to us in this life, 1 Peter 1, he mentions that. He, in 24, he says, all flesh is like grass and all its glory, like the flower grass. The grass withers and the flower drops off, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. It'll endure forever. And this is what we were born of. When you give your life to Christ, you're born of that incorruptible seed of the word of God. And so you will live forever. This tent may give out, but you are an eternal being. On the spirit and soul on the inside of you will go to be with the Lord in heaven. And then, of course, the day's coming when the rapture comes, when everyone's bodies will be changed. We'll be given, we'll be clothed over with an immortal body. Won't that be awesome? Yeah. And then we're going to come back with him. The overcomers are going to, the church is going to come back here to this earth and rule and reign with him. 
as he restores the earth to look like the Garden of Eden, like the Father's original plan. Day seven is coming. You know, in the Garden of Eden, when the Father said, it's all good, and he rested on the seventh day. That day's coming. And so we must have that hope. This is what Peter talks about. We have this living hope on the inside of us that this world is not our home. Beyond this life, we have an inheritance in heaven. It says it's beyond the reach of decay. It awaits us in heaven. You've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. If you've given your life to Christ, you've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. He talks about that too. You are a chosen person. You're a chosen priesthood, a royal priesthood. You have a new identity, a new identity, a chosen people. And God has called you, he says, out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's given you your life meaning. He's given your life purpose. He's given you identity. He's gifted you. And so Peter's writing from this perspective. He's like saying, wait, take your eyes off of just what's happening here in the natural. Look at the big picture of who you are. Because when you do that, life starts to make sense. If all you do is judge what happens in this life by this and this happens and this was wrong and this was unfair, you tend to go, what's the point? But when I look at the bigger picture, I realize, oh, wait, <laughs> there's a whole reason to why even I go through the sufferings and how I go through the sufferings. Because this is what Peter talks about, that we, we are actually like supposed to steward our sufferings the right way. Because sufferings can make you just want to draw back and be disillusioned and quit. It's like, what's the point? So he's writing from a perspective that's saying, look at who you are. Remember your real identity. And this is some of the things that he talks about in chapter 2. He says, like, because of that, say goodbye to the old life. It's fruitless. He calls it fruitless. Say goodbye to the old people, sometimes the old friends in your life. You have to say goodbye to some things in your life if you want to experience where God's going to take you. We cannot keep hanging on to the old and looking back. He said, put your hand to the plow and don't look back. Because looking back will just stall you. And there's really nothing back there. It's all an illusion. And he speaks, Peter writes about so many things in this, uh, these five chapters. He talks about the importance, the supreme importance of feeding upon the word of God. Like in chapter 2, he says, like newborn babies, desire the milk of the word of God that you would grow up. And so the word of God is likened like to food. And so we start out, we all start out as babes in Christ. But how do we grow spiritually? We've got to feed upon the word of God. This is our food. It is our bread. And then he talks about submission to authority, a pretty difficult subject. Not too many people are looking to understand, how do I submit to authority? And Peter is talking about it in light of evil governors, evil rulers even. How do you deal with this? I mean, I think if you look around at our government today, this is relevant. We want to know, how do I submit to this, the craziness that, I'm, that you're hearing? You have to use this language. You have to use this pronoun. You have to say it this way. He, uses, he talks about submission in marriage, in the marriage relationship. How much do we need to understand that? <laughs> 
He calls us to holy living. Now that's meaty. I mean, just mentioning the word holy living, isn't it? He challenges us really in this letter to not just be a Christian in name only, but let it translate. Like when you know your identity, you know you've been chosen, the Lord has a plan and purpose for your life. He's saying, let that translate now into how you live. Let the world see it. He's saying in effect, like, let it affect the way you think. Have you let it affect the way you think? Does it affect the way you think? The perception of yourself. Do you still see yourself the old way? How do you see yourself? Because this letter is helping us to live with an intentional life, okay? Live with purpose. Why does it matter if we live with purpose or not? Does it matter? Well, I just, 1 Peter 1.17 says this. I'm going to read this. It says, but, well, 15 says, but as the one who called you is holy, you yourselves also be holy in all your conduct and manner of living. For it's written, you shall be holy, for I'm holy. And if you call upon him as your father who judges each one impartially according to what he does, then you should conduct yourselves with true reverence during your temporary time here on earth. So why should we care about how we live and if this translates into holy living? Because it says we are or actually, he's going to look at what we do. We're going to give an account for our life. The day will come, we will stand before the Lord and give an account for how we lived. You know, sometimes I think to myself, it could be dangerous to come to church and hear the word of God. Because what you hear today, you're responsible for. You will not be able to stand before the Lord and say, I didn't know that. The Lord's going to say, I can take you right down to the day and time when that woman was standing up. She was, t- <laughs> her husband wasn't with her, but she, <laughs> she was preached from the word of God. And this should shake us a little bit. It should shake us a little bit. Because it should wake us up. We often pray that in our prayer meetings. Oh, Lord, awaken the church because the time is short. And we want to be sure that we're living our life in a way that honors him. Because we will have to give an account for what we did with the giftings he gave us, the time he gave us, the influence of the people around us that he put in our life. And, you know, we, Peter's writing, I think, he's now, he knows he'll face martyrdom. I mean, the Lord kind of hinted at that at the end of the Gospel of John, that, you know, the day's going to come when someone's going to take you by the hand and take you where you don't want to go. And I think it was an indication of the way he would be martyred. And, and uh, history says that he was. He, he wanted to be martyred even upside down because he wasn't worthy to be put on a cross the same way that Jesus was. And so he, Peter writes wanting... Christians to see the eternal perspective on life and to be prepared for tough days ahead. I I think this fits us. Not to be surprised by fiery trials. And you think about all the things that in time Peter would have had to reflect on after being with Jesus for three years. Like, I think about John 16, 33, where he heard Jesus say, in the world... You'll have tribulation and distress and trials and frustration, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world for you. 
And I think they probably heard that and went, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they were still waiting for him to establish like this earthly kingdom. Like, you've overcome the world for us, Jesus. Like, you're here. You're the, you're the Messiah. Overcoming the world, they thought, was just going to happen right before their eyes in the day and time that they lived in. And so I'm sure that Peter and the other 11 just didn't understand the depth of meaning, how much that, that truth would come to be relevant in their life, you know, and how they would have to live this out by faith now as they face persecution and go, this is what he meant, that he's overcome the world for me by his death and resurrection. It's some deep thought. It wasn't, it was maybe superficial at the time, but, you know, as they, they were experiencing rejection and persecution from the Roman government, the Pharisees, but they were going to have an opportunity now to live it out, run their race, finish their course. And, you know, Peter writes that, this is what he writes in that first chapter, that in this life, when you have your hardships, this is an opportunity for your faith, the genuineness of your faith to be tested. We don't like it, do we? <laughs> Why does it have to be this way, Lord? You know, and let's face it, it's easy to sing the song, great is thy faithfulness, you know, Blessings are mine with 10,000 besides. When life is going well, hey, praise the Lord. God's good, right? The money's coming in. The relationships are good. Your body feels well. God is good. Well, what do we do when things are turned upside down in our life? <laughs> are we still able to declare his goodness? Is he still good? Or did he change his mind? Does he know the, the Lord's the same? <laughs> he changes not. That's right. He changes not. But what do we do when we don't understand why this is happening in my life? I've been faithful to you. I, again, I go back to that same thing. I've been serving you. I used to think like that early on in my walk with the Lord. It was like, well, he, he rewards obedience, and he does. But somehow in my mind, that meant that I was going to be exempt from hardship. Like, you learn quickly. It's like, this is not the way the path of the Lord is. So when you come into a long season of what you feel like you're in a wilderness, or you don't understand why this happened, I mean, bad things happen to good people. Have, they do. Then what do we say? I can't believe this. <laughs> Where are you, Lord? I mean, we may say that for a moment. I mean, just in human response, I think anyone with human emotion would cry out like that. But then we have to make this adjustment, and we have to make this decision. Is he still good, even though I don't understand? Like First Peter, in, in chapter 1, verse 6, you know, he says this to us, that this, this is so the genuineness of your faith would be tested, which will actually redound to your glory and his glory at his coming. So God will use the hardships in this life. I don't believe God brings the hardships. I think just living in a fallen world, you will come up against hardships. The devil is at work in the world. And so hardships and sufferings and seasons of wildernesses will, will give us opportunities, if we look at it this way, to press into the Lord. We have to press into him. 
Because you could go either direction. Here's your trial and tribulation, and the devil will say, why don't you go this direction, deny the Lord, complain about it, say, I'm disillusioned, I thought it'd be different, or go this way, press into him, ask him, what are you doing? Help me understand. And it's hard on the flesh. We don't like when things don't go our way. We like control over our life. We like predictability, right? And so Peter, going back to Peter, you know, I think about him, like when he was, when you think back on him in the Gospels, Peter's attitude, he's young, he's bold, he's always speaking up, he's sure of himself, you know, <laughs> kind of putting his foot in his mouth often. <laughs> I'll never deny you, Lord, never. Oh, yeah. Or like the time he comes to the Lord and he says, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive my brother if he sins against me in a day? Like seven? <laughs> and the Lord's like, I mean, Peter probably thought, if I did it seven times in a day, like, I'm, I'm, that's pretty good. The Lord's like, huh, let's go 70 times seven a day. Yeah. And of course, the Lord wasn't like, Literally meaning a number. 490 times, when you get the 491, you don't have to forgive, it's just all over. Make yeah, make it a million, yeah. I mean, I'm sure Peter was like, what? 70 times seven, who can do that? But the point is, I mean, that he would later have time to think about these things, about how much forgiveness he was given in his life. And that the Lord was saying, just as the way I have given forgiveness... Over and over and over. I mean, he, he, they, Jesus wipes out by his blood and we're born again. Our sin debt that way. But then when we walk with him, we're likely to sin. It says, you know, it tells us that in 1 John. If you sin, confess your sin. And he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin. So we're never going to walk sinless after we've been born again. But there's no limit on the number of times then we, we're going to have opportunity to forgive somebody who's hurt us. Yeah. They cannot put a limit on it. And so when, you, when I read this letter like Peter, it's such a different Peter than he was 30 years ago. When he was overly confident in himself. You, you, when you read 1 Peter and you think about the way he was in the Gospels, you sense, you, you hear this humble spirit coming from a man who's been refined and matured and seasoned by life, the highs of ministry and the lows of ministry. I mean, think about Peter, like he argued with James and John. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? <laughs> he wasn't like, when he's writing this letter, cringed at himself, like, I can't believe that I argued about that. That the Lord's answer if you know that story, like the Lord's answer wasn't, hey guys, like it's impossible for you. Don't be talking about who's going to sit at my right and left hand. I mean, I know the sons of Zebedee, had, the mother came and said, let my son, you know, my, each of my sons sit on your right and left hand. But the Lord's answer to him wasn't, it's just impossible. And again, I think this is something that Peter didn't grasp. He couldn't have at the time because the Lord said, can you drink the cup that I'll drink? And can you be, will you be baptized with the baptism that I'll be baptized with? And it's interesting, I'm sure they didn't know what that meant because the Lord was talking about a cup of 
surrender, dying to yourself. The baptism wasn't a water baptism. It was a baptism unto death. I mean, we do it now outwardly. We say a water baptism is symbolic of dying. But he was literally saying, I'm going to die to myself and to live for, for you. But when he said, can you drink the cup that I'll drink and be baptized with the baptism? Their answer was yes. If you go back and read the story, and I think they didn't know what they were they know what they were agreeing to. And it's almost like the way it is for us when we come to Christ. We give our life to Christ. We don't really realize that the Lord is going to take us on a slow journey of surrendering your life, control of all of your life, which is a dying to yourself, isn't it? No matter the cost, like to the end. So he's saying if you can drink that cup, even if it means martyrdom, and it did mean martyrdom, like I said, for, for many of the disciples. If, I think Jesus was saying, and I think it's relevant for us today, that if you really want to know me, if you really want to be close to my heart, you know, are you willing to fellowship with me, stay with me in the deepest part of your own suffering? Will you fellowship with me in your suffering? Or turn away? Surrendering control of your life, dying to yourself, you know, living to serve the Lord, to walk obedient to Christ, like your flesh will scream, no, will it not? I mean, we talk about money. It's like to give, be generous, you know, the first sometimes thought in our mind before we're trained to think according to our new identity. No, it's mine, mine. It's like a little... Two-year-old, you don't have to train these little kids. Mine, mine, everything's mine. (laughs) But the point of our walk with God, and I think this is what Peter is getting across as he writes this, is that uh, what is most important to the Lord? Like, we are to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's the point of our walk with God. As we go through our hardships, he's teaching us to respond the way Jesus, the Holy Spirit is, the way Jesus would have responded. You know, and to be molded into the image of Christ, like the longer that you walk with the Lord, the greater insight you begin to gain about what's really important to him. How many of you found that out? What does the Lord really consider success in my life? What does he stamp as well done, good and faithful servant? What, What does a life look like when he does that? Because I think when you're young in, in the Lord, you can think it's all about your ministry impact. God's going to give me a ministry. I'm going to, you know, be on a big platform, a big stage. I'm going to have a lot of followers. I mean, look at the social media. People want thousands of followers. That means success, right? Everybody wants more influence, more numbers. I'm going to change the world. And that's awesome. Like, we need to have passion. I love the passion that you see in young people who want to go out and change the world. Thank God for that. We need it. But growing up spiritually isn't just all about, wow, and goosebumps, <laughs> right? It's really, to grow up spiritually, our character starts to get tested. Will I become more like Christ? Will I respond more like he would respond in humility or in servanthood? Or is it my way, what I want? Will I choose to go low to serve other people? 
I mean, this is why he talks about submission in this book. I mean, this, is, this ends up being a really meaty book. There's a lot to chew on in this book. Will I learn to forgive the way he's forgiven me? So, Because I, I know that like, when you're young in the Lord, there's a tendency to have this sense of, of know-it-all sense, know-it-all attitude. Well, if I were in charge, I'd do it this way. I don't like the way they do that. And I know, I've been there and done that. <laughs> the leaders are out of touch. I don't need their counsel. And sure, each one of us can hear personally from the Holy Spirit, right? We are all to be led, it's said, by the Holy Spirit. But it's interesting how the Lord puts the body of Christ together purposely so that we need one another. And it requires us to, like, submit to one another according to what God has called us to do. The body has many parts. Like, look at your physical body. And then it says in Scripture, in Corinthians, that the hand can't say to the eye, I don't need you. Like, you need all the parts of your body to work, right? And God puts a local church together that way. It says this in, in verse 10, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. See, when each part is working together in unity, in a body, there's, you know, there's something that happens good. Like if I want to go walk to that door, but my legs aren't functioning, it's like I can't get there. But if, you know, if somebody in the body, you know, if they're the, that's the legs and they're moving with me with my arms, we can get something done. And so the, each one, it doesn't say just some have received a gift. How many? Each, every person in this room. Again, we're not going to stand before the Lord and say, you didn't really give me anything. He'll say, I gave you something. You maybe just never asked me about it. We need to ask the Lord about these things. And notice who's the recipient of it. Minister it to who? One another. It says minister it to one another. So your gift is meant to bless another person, not yourself. So, so how do you bless another person? You have to be a part of a local body to do that. You have to join in with another local body. Uh, and if some of you, you know, if some aren't using their gifts, the whole rest of the body is actually missing out. There's like a, there's a piece missing. <laughs> there's a hand missing. It's like, no wonder we can't get this done. That hand won't, isn't here to help. And we're going to spend some more time on this next week because I really believe that when people begin to discover their gifts and take the risk of stepping out and using them, it re you experience the life of God in a way that you just can't any, any other way. And it can feel risky. I remember when I felt like the, you know, when the Lord was speaking to us about going to Bible school and train for ministry and then realizing you know, he would nudge me to go speak with my husband. And it's like, I don't want to do that. I don't feel comfortable doing that. That's not me. But, you know, you can only fight with the Lord for so long. <laughs> and it's like if you sit down, he just waits you out. He's long-suffering. You know, he's, he has a lot of patience. It's like, I'm still waiting on you. You know, we think we're waiting on the Lord. The Lord's like, I've been waiting on you. Step out of the boat. Go do what I've called you to do. And I think there's so much potential in this room. And people just, you know, you tend to, it's easy to come and sit and listen and then think, well, I don't, I'm not called to speak. It doesn't matter. 
if there's a, we're going to look at that in, next week. You know, this, some are called to serve in other ways. And there's giftings, there's administrative gifts, there's helps gifts, there's creative gifts, there's technological gifts. I mean, God has gifted everybody in some way so that the body, you know, can, can make the kingdom of God go forward in a local town. It isn't about just coming and sitting and leaving and going home and going, well, I got that. We implode. You know, we just keep taking in and taking in. We need to be a flow. We need to let it flow from us. And so now Peter, I'll go back to Peter here for a moment. Peter this is, is this seasoned apostle. And I think what he gets to see now 30-some years later after the highs and the lows of ministry, you know, that his desire to be greatest in the kingdom, like he fought with, with James and John, you know, is the one, Jesus said, who would go lowest and serve others like Christ did. That's, you know, think about, again, he had a lot to, to dwell on. The truth, again, the meaning would ring in his ears of what Jesus would have said in the world to come. The last now will be first then. What does that mean? <laughs> the people who will go low now, the people who will serve and just obey and do things out of love for the Lord, not to be noticed, not to have some great platform and a lot of hurrahs, but we're doing it to serve the Lord. And even if it looks like you're last, Jesus is like, just wait, you just hold on. Your reward's coming. That should give every one of us hope. That in the littlest things, it, it, as we go about our daily life in our families and in our relationships, to serve and love one another as Christ did, forgive. The Lord's watching all of it. The last, who are, the, the people who feel like they're last now will actually be first in the coming world. And so look at verse 7. He says, but the end of all things is at hand, therefore be alert and sober of mind that you may pray. I mean, Peter is telling us the end of the world as we now know it. It's coming. And if it was imminent then, how much more imminent is Jesus' return now? And he wants people, he wants the church to be ready to meet him. Peter is saying, like, look at what this verse says. Like, think clearly. Be sober-minded about all this. Pray. Like, pray that you see the big picture. Don't be deceived about everything that the world says. Like, put all your eggs in this basket. Make this world, you know, count. Make this world your home. No. He's saying, think clearly. Be sober-minded that you would pray. Like, a sober-minded person is going to live with eternity in mind. Again, this is why he says, you're, you're an alien here. You're a sojourner. You're just passing through. You have an inheritance reserved for you in heaven. So when you read 1 Peter, and I would encourage you, read 1 Peter. We've taken a couple of months. You know, we're making our way slowly through it. But be sure you do read it and read it fully. It's just five chapters. And ask yourself, what am I pursuing in this life? Am I living sober-minded? Am I thinking about eternity about meeting Jesus or am I just only living for everything the natural sense is everything now that's right in front of me because Jesus warned he said you know what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life in the kingdom we don't want to make that mistake and you could come to church and still make that mistake because if you just come 
and go and you really do, no, do little with what you heard, then your fruitfulness is going to be little. You know, am I pursuing, he talks about holiness, am I pursuing holiness? I mean, the one who called us, he said, is holy, therefore you be holy. Now, whoa, when I say the word holy, I'm telling you, I, in the day that we live in, the call to live a holy life, doesn't it sound archaic? I mean, I agree, if you read the word of God, you might say no, but if you would tell your neighbor or explain, well, I, God has called me to a to holy, a holy life, it'd be like, whoa, who do you think you are, right? right? <laughs> I mean, the world has gotten so corrupted, so dark. Pride, self-idolatry, it's filled with, with fears. Like, so if the world has a dim, or I would say non-existent view of the holiness of God, I mean, it's pretty much non-existent. What happens to the people's view, then, of their own personal sin? Think about it. There is none. It's non-existent, too. You're right. This is dangerous. It's very dangerous because the church can easily slide into a secular mindset and go, well, well, uh, it's like, well, <laughs> narrow is the way, Jesus said, and few are those who find it. I mean, I think about that, too. As the days go on, and I think, wow, this is becoming more and more apparent. Narrow is the way. It's starting to feel narrower, isn't it? It should. It should be feeling narrower. I mean, the world calls like killing the unborn. They call it women's health care. I think this is ridiculous. We're going to have drag queen story hour. We're going to have drag queens entertain the, the Air Force troops. And we're going to label it, these things family entertainment. It's just fun. What world am I living in? I feel like <laughs> we're called to be salt and light in this world, right? Salt and light, it says, in a crooked... <laughs> yeah, he, Peter called it a crooked and perverse generation. Well, here we are 2,000 years later. Not much has changed. This is why this book is so relevant when you read it. It transcends time. Because sin still has the same effect in people's lives. The fallenness of man produces the same evil in the world that they had back then. And that, w that we see now. And so our, the church is challenged to pursue holiness. Ask the Lord. It says pray, like that scripture we just we saw. Therefore, you know, that you may be sober-minded, that you may pray. Pray about what? Well, pray about, show me how to live a holy life. <laughs> right? I mean, I can't grow in holiness if I spend most of my time focused on things that aren't holy. And the Lord will begin to show you, that needs to go. Put your focus over here. Pursue it. We pursue it. Sometimes, you know, that, that can actually be easier than just saying, I cut this off. If you pursue holiness, like if you would just come to church every Sunday and take a couple of the things that the Holy Spirit impresses on your heart and do them, you're pursuing holiness. You're actually pursuing a holy lifestyle. And often, that's what it takes to get the hunger going. It's like, you get a little bit more, and it's like, you know what? That's looking uglier now. It's like, I like this better over here. But we have to pursue it. It won't just fall on us. 
And again, often we can just pray and ask God, show me, I want to live a holy life. Show me how. And this, of course, the more times we spend reading the Word of God, which we must read the Word of God every day. We say this over and over and over again, every day. You wouldn't skip physical food every day, would you? No, no one's looking to fast and say, I'm going to, well, the Lord calls this the bread of life. This is our spiritual food. So your spirit needs this food every day. And so as we look into this, this read it and pray, I have found you do gain some awareness of your own sin. I mean, you, you become aware of God's holiness and greatness, and we're reading through Isaiah now. I just think this just gives us the supreme, a picture of God's supreme majesty, beauty, awesomeness. And then he says, you're like grasshoppers in my sight, you know? It's like, yeah, we are, Lord. Like, what is man that you're mindful of him? Like, it puts things in perspective. So when he begins to point out sin in your life, you realize he's saying, that's not who you are. I made you. You're, you're chosen. You're made in my image and my likeness. And, of course, when we see that, it's, we're meant to repent. We're meant to say, I'm done with it. I don't want to live like that anymore. Let's go to verse 8. Above all things, it says, above all things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Fervent. It's interesting, that word. I looked it up in the Greek. And it means actually like, Fervent means like stretch to the limit, go to the full limit, like something that's stretched out as far as it can go. So it has this sense of, of course, fervent, like zeal, like not half-hearted, not lukewarm, fervent love. And the word for love in that verse is the Greek word agape. And we've talked about this before. There are several words in the Greek for love. Some of them just mean Eros love, like passionate sexual oops, kind of love or friendship love. But agape, the word agape is God's kind of love. It's a self-sacrificing love. It's a love that's willing to give even if it doesn't get anything in return. That's a love we have to learn how to express and use because that's the love that's actually been shed abroad, it says, in our heart when we were born again. You do have that kind of love on the inside of you. We are capable of expressing agape love. Is it easy? Sometimes no. (laughs) Because we're used to worldly love. Worldly love is based more on my feelings and my emotions. Like, oh, I love you because, because why? Because you treat me so nice and you give me things and you say nice things to me and it makes me feel good. We call that love. But... The problem with that kind of love is, if you turn on me, (laughs) then I can unleash my wrath on you, right? And as this says, love covers a multitude of sins. It's like, I'm not going to cover it. I'm going to, like, go on Facebook and tell everybody how awful you are. Like, I'm going to uncover every last bit of it just to get my revenge, right? (laughs) So, I mean, worldly love is based on your feelings. It's fickle. It's changeable. This is why people sign a prenuptial agreement. Just in case I change my mind, you know. (laughs) Just in case I don't like you later, right? 
Like 1 John 3.16, I put this up on the screen. It says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now, think about what that's saying. That's big. This is love. See, it's not like a warm fuzzy. I'm going to lay down my life for you. Like, that, that's huge. But yet this is the love that he's called us to, to love one another this way. <laughs> Talk about surrendering yourself. But see, Jesus did it first. He's our master. He's the model. He's the one we're following. So we can't say, it's too hard. I don't get it. If we will pray, this is why there's so many times where it says watch and pray or like that. Pray. So, and ask him, talk. Our relationship with the Lord isn't about just head knowledge. You must communicate with him. You must talk to him. As you read, show me, Lord. I don't get it. Help me to understand. See, when we begin to have personal relationship, then you begin to understand the heart of the Lord, and the Holy Spirit will show you. But that takes faith, does it not? It takes faith to sit down and go, okay, God, I believe you're real. I believe you love me. I believe you want to talk to me. So I'm going to talk to you. <laughs> and so this agape love is a love that's looking outward, okay? What can I do to help and benefit your life? And see, whether that's convenient or not convenient, whether I get something back out of it or not, this is how we're supposed to learn to love each other in the church. Look at verse 9, and then we're going to close after this. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, in the early church, Christians like the apostles would travel from city to cities where these letters would get taken. And, you know, back then, finding safe lodging, someplace to stay overnight would be difficult. I mean, considering the persecution, it could be even dangerous depending on, you know, where you were. They were like, you couldn't just get out your cell phone, look for an online Airbnb, Hotel Trafago, Priceline, like look for the best deal. No. <laughs> they had to have people willing to open up their homes, be hospitable, and open up their homes to people, believers, that would be passing through. I mean, Paul said, you know, sometimes to do that, you've entertained angels even unaware. So, But there was a level of sacrifice involved in that. You can imagine, like a lot of the early Christians, they were not rich. They were not wealthy people. And so it, it, it could put a hardship, uh, you know, on the home. If, if maybe there was one person who was always willing to do it, hey, yeah, you know, when you get to Athens, always stay with Joe. You know, he, he's always willing to open up his house for you. This is why I think it says, do it without grumbling. <laughs> it's interesting that it says that. Because I think believers may have felt overwhelmed at times with the extra added weight of just providing hospitality. Because it wasn't just, hey, maybe a meal. It was lodging overnight, food. They might have needed a new cloak, clothing. And so I fast forward this now to the meaning for us now here in America. You know, and I think, well... We certainly don't know much about sacrificial hospitality. I mean, the war in Ukraine, I think, has opened a door for some of that, especially in Europe, neighboring countries like Poland, people pouring in and people just willing to say, hey, you can stay with me uh, and I'll give you food and shelter. You know? And some of that's happening here in the U.S. You read about 
families, you know, Ukrainian families that are coming and staying with people in the U.S. But overall, in general, that kind of hospitality, we don't find a need for, a demand for. But there is a need, I believe, and a demand still, a command to be, have hospitality within the church. And what does showing hospitality look like? I mean, it, it's, really, it's, it's really just opening your heart. It's opening your home. And it's opening, let's say, like our church to just be friendly and serve others, to just share the love of Christ with people. I, I think, like, who was, Cindy was telling us about the rummage sale, people coming in the door, right, Susan? How, how welcome they felt, just coming in the door. I believe our church does a wonderful job with hospitality. There is a real cheerful, genuine cheerfulness, a warm welcome that we give people. And I'm proud of the church for that. I'm proud of you all for that because you all make that happen, you know. And, but I think that hospitality, like as far as outside the church though, in our homes, we tend to think, well, I can't do any hospitality. I don't have a perfect home. We start to look at everything that we have. But it's not about having a perfect home. <laughs> it's about the heart. It's about welcoming people to say, hey, I want to just get to know you. Like, I love you. This, this agape love. Like, you're a brother or sister in Christ. Let's sit down and have a meal together. Let's get to know each other. Why do we hesitate doing that? It's really just about making another person feel welcomed and cared for. And... You know, I thought, <laughs> I thought, what can we do in our church to make that happen? I want to challenge you. Because everybody's busy. I realize that. Everybody's busy. People are wrapped up in work. We have personal lives. But, you know, many people still go on social media, and they think this is hospitality. I share a few pictures of meeting together. I put a few comments on, and that's my way of connecting. It's like, well... Yeah, but it's way different than living, breathing, sitting down, having a meal, looking across the table and, and getting to know somebody, getting to know a little bit about their life. And I dare to say there's probably just the group of people in here today, you look around and go, I don't have any clue about even where they live or their life. Or Let's try to be more hospitable. We need to stir up the agape love that's on the inside of us, you know, that God's given us in our heart, because it can lie dormant. It could be there, and you might even like now when I say it, there's all kinds of things going on inside. Eh, well, eh, you know, like my house, or it's not easy. I don't have time. I don't know how to cook. Don't, don't. <laughs> Doesn't matter. You have a cup of coffee. You can even meet somebody outside of your home. Go to Panera. Hey, just, just want to get to know you. This is important for the church. It's important for the days ahead. It's really important. I mean, when it says, all, above all things, have fervent love for one another, how can we begin to develop that if we don't take some steps to say, hey, I want to just get to know you a little bit. So I challenge you with this message. Invite somebody from church just to your home. Invite them to go have coffee. Share a meal together. Pray. You know, just, can I pray for you for anything? Oh, I know this is way out of some of your comfort zone. But that's okay. 
This is really the way we learn to be more Christ-like. You know, because if we don't ever step out of our comfort zone and get out of the boat, then we just have the same thing we've always had. We just live the same way we always live. And we can get into a rut. And in some ways, you know, I think the church, God wants to awaken his church, get her, get her out of the rut. And actually find that when you fellowship with other people of like faith, there's a genuine, sacred, divine interaction there. Because this is the body of Christ. It's not just another human being in the flesh. If they're a brother or sister in Christ, you are coming close to, to Jesus. He's, that's part of the body. And how beautiful is that? And it's exciting to think, what could God do amongst the people that really you know, honor him that way and say, you know, I give honor to the church. I give honor to the bride of Christ, my brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's just, we'll bow our heads here for a moment. Thank you, Holy Spirit. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the fellowship of the saints, Lord. I pray, Father, in the days ahead that you would work this message about unity and fellowship and hospitality and the joining of our lives together, Lord, in a deeper way. You desire that, Lord. You desire that we all come in the unity of the faith and the oneness of Christ. So, Lord, help us to be people that take you seriously on that. Step out of our comfort zone. Get to know our brothers and sisters in Christ. Love one another fervently. We worship you, Lord. And if there's anybody in here today, you know, we've been talking about God's love shed abroad in your heart whenever you are born again. If you're in this place today and you go, I don't even know if I am born again. I'm not even sure even what you mean by that. Well, Jesus, the whole point of the gospel, the message of the gospel was Jesus coming to the earth, becoming a man like us, the son of man, taking on the sin penalty of fallen man. And then rising from the grave for our justification. And if you believe that, you could be saved. Anyone who says who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you believe in your heart that he died for you and he rose from the dead and you confess him with your mouth, you shall be saved. That's what it takes, faith. And so is there anybody in here today that wants to make that confession of faith in Jesus? Anybody in here who feels like I'm, the Lord's calling me? Okay. All right. Praise God.